Hello, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. John Petricelli. John is a social psychologist at Wake Forest University who researches a variety of topics within the area of social cognition and decision-making, including the science of bullshit. John gave a popular 2019 TEDx talk entitled Why BS is More Dangerous Than a Lie that was the precursor for his book titled The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. In our discussion, John made the argument that bullshit is one of the most prevalent factors in undermining communication and civil discourse. And after speaking with him, I tend to agree. Humans default to having an opinion on topics, regardless of their knowledge on the topic. And while some forms of bullshit may be harmless, others can have serious consequences. There are multiple psychological mechanisms that contribute to this tendency. But speaking with John gave me hope that we can overcome our apathy about bullshit if we aggressively focus on valuing objective truth over our views and ideologies. We also need to overhaul how we communicate with others to ensure that they will be receptive to changing their views when new information is available. For example, ever since this recording, I've made a concerted effort to start communicating how confident I am when giving my opinion about a topic. Forcing yourself to add the caveat that you're 50% sure of something helps to communicate humility and doubt to others. It also helped me realize just how often I may present uncertain statements as stone-cold facts. I thought our conversation was very enlightening, and that is no bullshit. Enjoy. Okay, today I am here with John Petricelli. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Uh, so uh, I, it was interesting because I was, I was just telling my girlfriend, uh, I'm about to hop on with this uh, bullshit researcher, which I'm sure you've, wow. having written a book uh, with bullshit in the title, you know, there's lots of fun sentences that you can say <laughs> that go along with your book. Uh, the title of the book is The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. It's uh, I thought it was super interesting, covered a lot of uh, a very broad range of topics in social psychology, a lot of stuff about misinformation and so on and so forth. I think it's it's important to start off our conversation by uh, by defining bullshit in your in your turn in your how you define it in the book and in particular how it's different from lying. Sure, sure. Yeah, I borrow heavily from uh, Harry Frankfurt's original definition of bullshit. Uh, he wrote a book in 1986, or I'm, I'm sorry, actually an article in 1986 with that title on bullshit, which then later became a book about 19 years later. Um, and the book is actually just word for word, the 20 page article that he wrote in 1986. And the way he defined bullshit was that it's, it's a social communicative substance that occurs when someone communicates something with little to no regard for truth or genuine evidence or what we would call established knowledge. Um, and oftentimes uh, bullshit is confused for lying. And it certainly is, is not lying. Um, uh, first off, I mean, bullshit is used in the same way or some, for the, some, some of the very same purposes of lying. People use bullshit in a, a wide range of rhetorical strategies to basically talk about things in which they know little to nothing about in order to exaggerate their abilities, their knowledge, to impress others, um, to, to simply fit in with others, to have something to say, to be sort of a factor in the conversation. It's used to influence and persuade other people. Um, and again, just to basically sell the idea that you do know what you're talking about, even when you when you really don't. Um, now, so yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think in, in having had a few conversations about about uh, how how other people interpret bullshit, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that 
I've heard is that people react by saying, well, if you don't care about the truth, isn't that lying, right? Uh, how, well, how, how do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah, so, so usually uh, bullshitting is confused with lying, but there's an important difference. There's actually a number of differences, but the most important one is that, that to the extent that the liar is trying to intentionally distort some aspect of the truth, it comes in quite handy to know what the truth is, right? And so, so by definition, the liar is usually, if not always, concerned with the truth, whereas the bullshitter doesn't care at all. They're not paying attention to it. Um, they couldn't care in, in the slightest. And in fact, um, the bullshitter often believes what it is that they say. The liar does not believe what it is that they that they communicate. Um, so uh, we also know that you know to the extent that the liar does know the truth and they're trying to distort some aspect of the truth, then categorically what they are saying is false. But uh, with the case of bullshitting, just by chance or by accident, the bullshitter may say something that's actually correct. But the liar would know whether or not what they're saying is correct. The bullshitter doesn't know. They, because, again, they're not paying attention uh, to truth, established knowledge, genuine evidence at all. Um, we also know that the, that the social reaction to the two social behaviors is very, very different. Um, so if someone lies to us, usually there's a quite a bit of negative reaction there's a lot of disdain and there's a lot of of truth telling that the liar is going to have to to communicate in the future for us to regain their 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 trust and and their sense of honesty there's a huge asymmetry in that most often we give people the benefit of the doubt we think they're nice they're honest right they're trustworthy but a single lie can change that and then we need lots and lots of behaviors to, to regain the, the trust. But oftentimes with bullshit, people just say, oh, well, Ryan's just bullshitting. And they give you a social pass of acceptance. And, oh, and they and assume. It's wildly, wildly yes. unsatisfying, yes. too, especially when, <laughs> yes. you, when you confront. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, when you when you because, uh, you know, I think we all have have people in our social circle that engage in this behavior. Um, and it is extremely unsatisfying when, uh, when you see con levels of confidence so high that once, once you, you finally get a very clear truth, it's as you just said, it's this sloughed off. It wasn't, it wasn't, I'm caught. It was just kind of sloughed off like, Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and the problem with that is, is that, most people believe that they can detect bullshit quite readily, and they assume that it doesn't have the negative consequences that lying has. Um, and again, probably because they feel that they can detect it. But studies show that, that even the most confident people um, in their abilities to detect bullshit or to detect lies are oftentimes the least competent in doing so. Um, and one of the problems that I believe, and I don't have evidence for this just yet, I'm working on it, so I don't want to give you an example of what it is that I'm ultimately trying to reduce in our communicative culture, but um, the, they, both behaviors um, can, or both the liar and the bullshitter can actually say the very same thing. And they are similar in that they appear to be concerned with truth. So the liar, if they're telling a good lie and trying to, you know, trying to get away with, with, with their dishonesty, they're going to tr oftentimes try to believe the lie, right? They, they you know, lying 101, a uh, trick is to you know, try to imagine that the lie is actually true. And then you'll do all of the nonverbals and, 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 and intonations in the voice and things like that. And, and other, behaviors that would, would be consistent with telling the truth, right? But the bullshitter doesn't have those burdens at all. I mean, if, if you actually believed the lies or the bullshit that you're, that you're telling, then, then you're not burdened with, with even trying to remember 
the truth, right? Because you actually believe what it is that, that you're saying. And, and they can say, again, they can say the very same things. Like, I mean, if, if, a if a, if your boss at work says, you know, there's going to be some restructuring, but I can assure you no jobs will be lost during this restructuring. Okay. If the boss is lying, um, then she knows that, that what she's saying is not true. She knows that there will be some jobs lost, right? But the bullshitter has no clue as to whether or not there will be jobs added or lost Mm -hmm. and really doesn't care. It just feels like the best thing to say at the time, or they, they know that that's what people want to hear, or maybe they just want to see what it feels like to say that and get, and get reactions. There's many, many motives to both lying and bullshitting, but I've argued that they're, they're, they're much more plentiful. There's got to be dozens of these situations and context in which, in which people choose to bullshit. And in fact, there was, there was a study done just uh, recently, it's currently under, under review, where hundreds of people in the workplace and various work sectors were told about the definition, the Harry Frankfurt definition of, of bullshitting, and asked, well, why, why did you do this? And what was the situation? And did it work? Did, were you trying to achieve some sort of uh, goal or objective? And what they found were 36 unique situations just in the workplace, right? That, right. that people choose to bullshit. So if, if the workplace happens to be a place where you would otherwise expect people to rely on evidence-based communication and information sharing, which we would hope, right? We're making important decisions in the workplace and sharing information, you would expect bullshit to be at a minimum. But if there's 36, you know, unique situations, even in the workplace that we can identify that people would engage in, in bullshitting behavior, then there must be dozens more in our, in our greater area of life, even outside of work. Yeah. I, uh, as I was going through the the book, I, I couldn't help but think of, of, you know, my former career and in sort of working for large companies and, um, and how uh, part of the reason I think why I left is because there is an inauthenticity to participating in, in, in that as a career. And it happens in so, so many different ways, whether it's, whether it's talking to, to coworkers, and and you know that there's something at your company called HR, so you have to watch your language, and that ultimately will lead to a, li- a little bit of, of bullshit when you're when you're talking to them because you're not going to be entirely honest, and you might say you, you know you're not lying as you said, but you, you can't be entirely authentic with them. Either that, or if you think about it in terms of the leadership, like, like you just said, the boss says we're, you know, we don't think they're going to be any layoffs. And even, even to that point, I'm a little bit more sympathetic when leadership is trying to calm nerves, but they know they can't be honest. Um, but yeah, the, so is there, in terms of bullshit in the workplace uh, that we're talking about, um, is there, why do you think it's so common that 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 yeah. uh, in the workplace specifically, yeah. From my research, I've identified two uh, important factors. I believe there's at least four, but there's there's two that are appear to be the strongest. Um, and I think in the workplace, certainly where you're supposed to have some sort of expertise, uh, the the first factor is especially important. So the first factor is is just a general implicit sense. An oblig- a sense or, or an obligation that you should have an opinion about everything <laughs> or yep. anything that people are actually talking about, right? Or mm-hmm. that other people have expressed an opinion. And so especially in the, in the workplace where you might have a particular domain of expertise, you should be able to comment or give an informed opinion about the issues uh, under, you know, under the umbrella of, of your expertise. So um, we know, though, that it's just impossible to have a well-informed opinion about everything, right? right. And, and everything, when I say everything, quote unquote, is, is expanding, um, 
it's it's not just you know what is your opinion about uh, nuclear energy and what is your opinion about uh, voting rights and who should vote and when or 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 what do you think about uh, uh, capital punishment and and things like that it's those things too but it's it's also you know do you really believe that Slumdog Millionaire should have won so many Oscars or should, did Game of Thrones end early or should Kim Kardashian and her sisters be permitted to digitally modify their pictures on Instagram? And should people be allowed to mm-hmm. carry small toy dogs in their purses and things like that? And people will give you readily available opinions and it doesn't take long uh, to give you, to generate an opinion about things. I've even uh, in studies I've conducted early studies, I've created fictitious diseases um, well, well before uh, COVID came along. Um, and if it sounds like it has easy to imagine symptoms, um, people just throw the gloves down and are able to, pre- you know, they're able to tell you how to prevent the disease, how to treat it. And it doesn't even exist. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you give it a fictitious name that kind of yeah. sounds reasonable uh, and they have ready-made opinions about it. Um, so this, well, this let's, general, so let's, yeah, let's yeah. zoom, zoom out a little bit and, and talk about the culture in the, in the United States. Cause I, I feel like that's, I feel like it does contribute to normalizing this kind of behavior. I know when I think about uh, what I, you know, changes I've made personally to try to bullshit a little bit less. Um, part of it is being comfortable saying, I don't know. And it, it, it yeah. seems like a, such a super basic idea that no one understands that, that when you are to, to assess whether or not you're informed about a topic mm-hmm. and be comfortable saying, I don't know. The first thing out of your mouth should be, I don't know. And it feels like you know, to, you know, to your point saying that, that you have to have an opinion on everything that, uh, that that's kind of a, one of the issues with, with the culture in the United States, uh, pro- probably other, other first world nations as well, but, uh, not being, a, be, being uncomfortable with uncertainty, being uncomfortable with that, those, I don't know statements. Yes. And I actually hitting on sort of the second, uh, strong factor, that sort of underlying when and why people engage in bullshitting behavior. And that is that, that we have made it so easy to get away with. We accept it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's very, very rare that someone confronts us um, with the possibility that they caught us in, in, in bullshitting. Right. And, yeah. and, and that's it's awkward often, too. It's exactly, it's, it's, it's super, yeah. super uncomfortable, especially because, when someone starts, uh, you know, going into a, you know, their opinion on something, I think a lot of people just say, well, he's talking. So that means he must know something. And then, it, and yeah. then, <laughs> if, you, you know, you have this, this feeling of, well, there's a, there's a much larger consequence for me if I think that they're bullshitting, because now I have to go, Hey, that's not right. <laughs> and, and, and it makes kind of a, like it, it, what they're doing isn't creating an awkward social situation necessarily. But if I say that's wrong, now yes. we've got this bizarre conflict that could happen in, you know, pretty innocuous social situations at a bar, at a family dinner. Yes. Yes. And usually what precedes any increase in the likelihood that someone is going to call another bullshitter on their bullshit is the uh, level of agreement with the with the claims that are being made what we found in our research is it is extremely unlikely that you're going to find someone calling someone on bullshit if they already agree with them and in fact when we set up um, in one study when we set up our participants to believe we led them to believe that they were going to communicate their opinions about nuclear energy and other other social issues with a sociology professor who happened to have similar attitudes right again the gloves were off and they were they were they reported they self-reported uh 
significant degrees of bullshit well beyond another condition that we led to believe that the sociology professor actually had uh, very different attitudes about the three issues that we asked them to report their attitudes about. So, so the expectations of the audience, if, we, if they think that it's easy to get away with, people will tend to bullshit because they don't expect to be confronted, especially with like-minded, you know, similar attitude individuals. And that's what makes it that's what makes it easy to get away with. And a lot of times the reason why we are unable or unwilling to confront others, even though we might know that, okay, maybe that's not entirely true. It's much easier and much more comfortable to focus on uh, everything but the truth and everything but the evidence. It's very difficult to do the opposite. Right. So it's it takes a lot of time and effort to seek the truth. To seek, is there a convergence of opinions on this, you know, coming from independent lines of inquiry that would be a good reason for me to believe something? That takes a lot of time. Again, yeah, it may, you might have the I don't know for three or four days or a couple of weeks before you have an informed opinion about it. And people just are not willing to do that. It takes a lot of time and effort to engage in evidence-based communication and reasoning. And that's just what most people are not willing to do. I mean, we're cognitive sure. misers. I mean, we're cognitive misers. We just do not have uh, three days to give an, an opinion about who we think is going to win the Super Bowl this sure. year. So uh, in the in the book, you have lots of interesting uh, real world examples of, of bullshit. Um, do you have uh, do you have any favorites uh, in, in terms of overall that's the nice little uh, perfect example of, of bullshit. Yes, I, I do have one. Um, let me ask you, can, can I get, can I get permission to, to cover four of them though? Briefly? Sure. Oh, ab- so, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We can definitely so, talk so, about that. Yeah. So I have, my favorite has to be the very first, um, in the sort of epigram of the, of the book. Um, so it's, it's a quote by uncle Rico from the movie Napoleon dynamite, where mm-hmm. he, mm-hmm brags about um you know his quarterbacking abilities and his ability to throw a a football over a mountain in 1982 and and they would have won the state championship if only the coach had put him in in the fourth quarter and if so he'd be soaking it up with his you know with his lover and in the in the hot tub and you know with millions of dollars in his mansion and everything would have been so great right Uh that type is probably my favorite because uh, not only is it, is it somewhat humorous, but it only, the only response that usually is some eye rolling, you know, and maybe a little bit of annoyance. I I would say that that's, it's relatively harmless bullshit, right? Right. Right. Uncle Rico is not going to be drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. (laughs) And it's not, it's not going to change anyone's decision. So, so my favorite type of bullshit is that, which is harmless. Um, And I do think uh, there are uh, sort of three general levels of, of bullshit on sort of a, a continuum of harm, uh, and some of which actually can have benefits, right? So in the summertime, you know, at the pool, we often tell children, you know, Ryan, um, they put a compound in the swimming pool water. Um, so as to detect the presence of urine and uh, so as to catch people who pee in the pool, you know, right. And as every kid knows, uh, most kids know that that's that's just not true um, mm-hmm. because they've tested it. <laughs> and but but to the extent that that bullshit and most most parents don't know even if it's true. So uh, the, but they're going to say it anyway. Right. Right. To the extent that that prevents a few children from peeing in the pool. And I think there's actually some benefits to to it. Right. Sure. But, Mor- but, but morally, maybe not. Yeah. But, but yeah. Some, if you if, if, if morally you, you feel like the ends justify the means, by all means, that's a perfect, perfect. Uh, tactic. Yes. Yes. And yeah. there's there's lots yeah. of there's lots of examples of that. But but you also have what I would call bad bullshit. So mm-hmm. so a good example of that, it, you might remember from the um, uh, two presidential campaigns ago, uh, our former president uh, at the time said, did you see her face? Who would vote for a face like that? Okay. To me, that is just bad bullshit, right? It, it, it degrades and it dehumanizes women. It suggests 
rather strongly that that women can't be good leaders unless right. they're attractive, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that just right. does not make sense. And to the extent that that shapes beliefs and it shapes decisions, and there's nothing more fundamental and important to decision-making than what you believe to be true, then I think that's quite bad. But, but, but you also have uh, directly harmful bullshit, okay? So if someone tells you, you know what? I can drive uh, while I can text while driving, no problem. Um, it's it doesn't affect my performance. Um, I can I can t- fire off a few texts and 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 you know what? Everybody does it anyway. Um, I don't I don't really see the problem. Okay, mm-hmm. that is in my my estimation is it receives a no no no. There is no way that your driving is unaffected while, while you're being distracted, you know, goofing around on a cell phone, but, but mm-hmm. people will tell you that. And to, again, yeah. to the extent that people feel that it's okay because everybody else does it, which not everybody does it. Um, then I, I think it, it has, it has the potential to create, you know, direct serious harm. And so I, I would say it's, it's more than harmful. It's, it's quite dangerous. Yeah. Um, especially so you see that at, 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 at um, I mean, you, you see it at bars all the time where someone's had a few drinks and it's like, no, I'm, I'm, you know, I can, I can handle, I can handle it. And, um, and, you know, to your point, like it's, um, it's not something super verifiable. It's not like they're flat out lying. They just, there is, there is an unknown there. It's, I, you know, I don't know if I can drive home. Okay. But what I want, my goal is to make you go away. And I'm going to use that through these words that I'm, yes. I'm kind of, you know, playing around with to manipulate you. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, I strongly believe that like virtually all of our problems, you know, whether they be personal, interpersonal, professional, societal, they're often rooted directly or indirectly in mindless bullshit reasoning and communication that we share. And, and the reason for that, I believe, is that, that people tend to rely primarily on their own personal and professional experience, yep. you know, from, from, uh, from the paper delivery person to the physician, <laughs> I right. mean, it, literally, and, and personal data collection, personal and professional data collection, um, outside of, of one's own experience is an extremely messy data collection method. It, it results in, in data that is often random. You know, it's, it's unrepresentative. It's certainly incomplete and inconsistent. Um, it's, it's often indirect. It could be second or, you know, or third hand. Um, and it's often surprising and counterattitudinal and not, not data that we are, are readily willing uh, to count you know, in our Excel spreadsheet, you know, if you yep. will. So, so it's, um, again, it's a very, very messy way to collect data. And it's not anything like the systematic data collection, you know, that a scientist um, would, would use for, for data collection to make informed opinions about, about what is and what isn't actually true. Yeah, I think, I, I think about, you know, the, the most intelligent people that I know that that will heavily weight their personal experience. And, you know, I've 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 thought about it a lot. And it's it it is a bit of a conundrum, because it's not that exclusively low intelligence people value personal experience over some sort of objective scientific truth. It's 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 also very intelligent people that do the same thing. And uh, I just uh, released a, a podcast talking about the self. And uh, it seems to me that some, one of the processes involved here is self-control in the sense that, that I think by default, we like these personal, personal examples. You, we, we use that experience because yeah. it, it, it feels very scary to, to, to say, no, no, my, my default view is not right. This mm-hmm. research study over here or this data, you know, this body of data is the truth, not what I'm feeling. Uh, 
And I don't really know, you know, I don't really know what the solution is there. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you, you had mentioned it earlier. Well, you know, that the response, I don't know, um, is, is often neglected and replaced with basically, you know, quick and dirty uh, decision-making that, that sounds good, that, that leads to some confidence. I mean, I've had, I've literally, Ryan, I've asked at least uh, 50 different people who said that, nope, I'm not getting a vaccine. I'm not getting for, I'm not getting a COVID vaccine. I'm not getting a booster. And oftentimes I will hear things like, well, uh, I've just heard too many stories uh, of, of blood clots associated with, with the, with the vaccine. And I, I, what I usually do is I ask them, well, so is what you're saying that the vaccine causes blood clots? And, and I said, yes, yes, that's what I think there's a causal, I think there's a causal relationship essentially between the, the vaccine and blood clots. And I say, well, can you just answer me this? Do you actually know what it takes to make a causal, you know, a confident causal claim, you know, from like a medical science point of view as to whether or not there is a causal connection? You know, do, what, what do you compare that to? What, what do you compare? I said, if, if you had a million people who had the COVID vaccine and maybe let's, let's say they also had the booster and let's say 1000 of them develop blood clots following, you know, shortly after, maybe within a week. So a million people vaccinated, a thousand of them blood clots, right? So that's like one tenth of 1%. I said, what should we compare that to? Only about 5% of those 50 people that I've asked actually have any clue what we're supposed to compare that to, right? Yeah. And, and what we need to do is, is to randomly select another million people to have maybe a saline shot, placebo, right? Maybe another million people to uh, get nothing at all, right? And then find out, well, what is the base rate frequency of of blood clots you know and then test whether or not statistically there's a difference between the number of people who get a blood clot following a vaccine versus a placebo without the active ingredient or, or nothing at all and then if there's a big difference then we can say okay well maybe there is a causal connection um but yeah. most people are are completely unaware it's just feels better and they feel more confident than to wait for that data and to you know, wait for all of all of the scientific reasoning that needs to to unfold. It just it's just easier to accept you know a quick and dirty answer, um, and then start backing it, and then start finding all kinds of anecdotal evidence to back it up and to feel better about it, and to convince other people that they're right. Because of course, if if we can convince otherwise rational and reasonable people that our position is correct, then we gain all the more confidence. Well, that's the sinister part about public health issues like, like COVID, uh, because, you know, you have so on one hand, you have, you know, people like myself who's desperately trying to just kind of align everything I do with some sort of piece of scientific information. But that is not only is it exhausting, but in, in a in a in a time where studies are being conducted so rapidly and and you see i mean even even if you see one contradiction it's like i i i i literally can't keep up with the scientifically scientifically sound correct thing to be doing there's that for for the the people that are the, you know the soldiers for reason and science and then on the other hand you have everyone else who doubles down on some view like it's has nothing to do with And in fact, I would argue that everyone else, it's not even like even both sides don't necessarily care about data points. They're kind of going back and forth with a worldview. So it's like, the you know, something really sinister like COVID. It's like, I don't even know where the non bullshit solution is. I mean, yeah, you know, I've, I've argued that that the, the source of bullshit that is most potent is is not um, the people that we may associate most with bullshit, like you know, or social media or even mainstream media. I mean, if if Anderson Cooper or Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson, if they say something 
you know, on their programs that I agree with or disagree with, it, it may not really have much of an effect. But if my next door neighbor or my best friend or my family member or my Uncle Larry you know, <laughs> um, is also saying the same thing that they are, somebody who I actually respect and somebody who I actually communicate with on a daily basis and I can ask questions, they're still saying the same thing that that you know Tucker Carlson is you know then I then it's it's much more difficult um, to not kind of fall in line and to not be influenced by that source of information. So I I often believe that 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 um, and I I don't have hardcore boots on the ground evidence for this just yet, but the, I believe that that source that interpersonal close you know close bullshit is right. is much more. Uh, potentially harmful and impactful than even things that we get, you know, from from social media or mainstream media or or the internet. Because we know, of course, that you know that, that those are attention grabbing sources, and there are there's a lot of informa- misinformation in those sources. But I think there's just as much, if not more, coming from the close people that we interact with on a daily basis that we actually respect and actually care about their attitudes. Um, yeah. The um, uh, I always, I'm always fascinated with the amount of, uh, you know, speaking of close, uh, close friends, close colleagues, I'm always fascinated with the amount of bullshit and human preferences. Um, specifically, you know, you, in the book, you talk about wine. Uh, I, I love, I love a good amount of BS around food. You know, this, you have to try this, this, this hamburger. It's the best you'll ever have. And, you know, we're, we're kind of tip back into the kind of innocuous form of BS, but um, could you talk about some of the examples, some of, some of the research around the BS that, that goes into our, our taste preferences and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, most times uh, people believe that they can, um, detect things with, you know, with their senses that, um, that, and, and comment on them that just are not accurate. Um, the same thing even goes with, with their, their beliefs and their ability to detect lies. People will tell you that, oh, yes, I'm a good, good eye detector. And, and then you test them and they're, they may be the very worst bull, you know, bullshit and, and lie detectors among them. But um, we, we know from uh, lots and lots of studies on on detecting even differences in wine are are more in the imagination than in the actual experience. So if we blindfold uh, wine taste testers, even so-called experts, right, and and we tell them, all right, well, I want you to try these two different wines, and you give them um, two different glasses, uh, but they're of the from the same bottle, uh, the expectations that they have can color what it is that they experience and what and the, what they report they can take two glasses of wine from the same bottle and rate them very differently and describe them very differently right um you can also take um take the blindfold off right and and say all right well and take uh, a white wine right and you you pour two glasses of the white wine and you put some red dye that doesn't uh, change the the flavor of the white wine at all. So and you have now you have an expectation of what what's going to be experienced with a white wine versus a red wine, but they're essentially the same wines. You'll also get right. a different report of experiences and different ratings um, of this of, of again the same the same two wines. And then you, you look at a lot of the especially with wines, I mean, the awards um, and, the, and the gold labels that the bottles get at, you know, sure. at award shows and things. I mean, they're just all over the place. There's no systematic uh, way of, of predicting uh, the success of a wine. Um, and, and most, if you take a look at the data, and this is, this is very well known, but people don't talk about it. And I think, Ryan, you're probably hitting on a, one aspect of it, I mean, especially with food and, and wine. And it's kind of fun. You know, yeah, to brag and, sure. and, and, to, and to get people to share the things that you really like. And and again, uh, we feel we feel good about it. And again, to the extent that we can, can get otherwise rational and reasonable people to agree with us, it feels good you yeah. know, to have to have consensus. And I think that is part of what can make the behavior of bullshitting a, a fun experience. 
Yeah. And it, and it, it speaks to, you know, if there's anything that speaks to how commonplace BS is in this category, it's on occasion, I'll, I'll say to someone, you know, this, I probably can't tell the difference between, uh, you know, two beers, Michelob Ultra, Bud Light. I, I think I can. I usually say, <laughs> I think I can, yeah. but I probably can't. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you try to explain that, that there's some visual cues and it kind of colors your, your, your perspective when you taste it. But it, it sounds like an out of place conversation to say, I probably can't tell the difference between two completely different beers, you, you would get a, I typically get, you know, strange reactions to that. In fact, people will typically double down and say, I'm really good at that. So on and so forth. Yes. Well, there, there's certainly the, the, the above average, you know, effect is, is extremely pervasive, right? So most people believe that maybe they're not, you know, the, uh, you know, master of any domain but they're the jack of all trades you know so that they're 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 not master of anything um but they're above average on almost everything right and and even with uh ability to detect different wines or what the best pizza is or whether or not this automobile this used car is going to get you another hundred thousand miles people tend to feel very confident in their predictions. And one of the reasons for that is, is just basic imagination and where our confirmation biases uh, tend to take us. So, so it's very easy to say, well, I think, you know, horse number seven is going to win this race. And looking at the, um, looking at the program of all the horses in the race, you know, this horse has the lightest jockey and it has the best win percentage and he's won the most money and he ran, maybe in second place in his last, I mean, if you look at a, a horse race program, I mean, you can, I mean, it looks like a bunch of hieroglyphics to some people, right? Because it's just so much information. You could probably figure out what the jockey had for breakfast if you look hard enough. Right. Um, but people have enough information, anything that looks, um, you know, a, a little bit abnormal or exceptional people can use that. And it, it starts driving their confidence and they start to imagine, oh, their horse winning the race, right? And it's just very easy to then feel confident going into the event that your horse is going to win. And that's why people lose a lot of money at the racetrack. Um, now, so, do you, this makes me think that, you know, the number of domains that we see bullshit occurring, how commonplace it is in conversation. Obviously, there's, there's clearly a strong motive to be perceived as competent. And the more and more I, I think about it, the more and more I feel like it's, this is just flat out, there had to have been some sort of evolutionary advantage to bullshitting in the sense that, that it, was, it was less dangerous to express an idea, to have an opinion or... Mm -hmm take a stance that whether or not it's true or not is irrelevant than to not take a stance at all, or perhaps to be silent. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how you, how you think about that in terms of yeah. the, the actual functionality of, of, of bullshit in, in, in conversation. Yes. Well, it certainly goes well with attempts to persuade and influence people. So we know that if you have, if you have strong arguments um, in favor of what it is that you're trying to sell someone, it, whether that be a used car, a wine, or some treatment, uh, or the latest uh, diet fad, whatever it is that you're trying to sell them, if you have strong arguments, um, it is not to your advantage to bullshit, okay? Um, because when you have strong arguments and you rely on evidence that tends to elicit what we call central route uh, processing in which people actually think about and they listen carefully to the arguments. And so that's when they, they, they can detect the difference between strong and weak arguments. Uh, but when it comes to bullshit frames of the same arguments, the very same arguments, and I tell you, well, I don't really care what the research suggests and I don't care what the experts say, you know, gosh, darn it. This is the best. Um, this is the best 
and safest car on the road today, you know, um, then it tends to, what we believe is that it tends to elicit what we call peripheral route processing, where people do not listen carefully and think carefully about the arguments. And they're often swayed by peripheral cues, like maybe how many arguments are included in the claim, you know, to support the claims or, um, or how attractive the person is, maybe how tall they are or how much expertise they have. All of these kind of peripheral cues that tend to drive attitudes in a particular direction. And what we find is that, that weak arguments uh, framed with, the, with the, the sound of bullshit, right, as opposed to evidence-based communication actually performs better than, than evidence-based weak arguments, <laughs> okay? So, so, so it, is, it is persuasive and influential in particular circumstances. Um, and that's one of the reasons that, that people use it. But, uh, and one of the reasons why it is often uh, effective is that, that the receivers of, of bullshit do not ask the right questions. They just simply do not ask, you know, well, who is telling me this? What is their expertise? How do they know that the claim is true? And yeah. what is it? What is it that they're trying to to tell me? But yeah, let's let's yes. stay let's stay on this. We'll yeah. we'll wrap up by talking about bullshit detection. Um, I in in the book you talk about uh, the how versus why questions, which is kind of my uh, one of my favorite ways of 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 dealing with bullshit. Um, a re- a couple very poignant questions can really, really trip someone up when they're, when they're kind of just going about some sort of argument, some sort of opinion, really mm-hmm. strong opinion that they hold. Um, but what, what do we need in our, our uh, bullshit detection kit? Yeah, I think at, uh, probably the, the best skinny on this issue is, is to remember three uh, types of questions. And the first one is, is one that gets a clarification, and that is the, the what question. What exactly are you saying, Ryan? You know, wh- when you tell me, hey, there, are, there will be no jobs lost during the restructuring, are you saying that I have security in my job, that I'm, that I'm not going, that I don't have anything to worry about? Is that, is that what you're saying? Usually what will happen if, if, if the person is bullshitting is they will for the first time hear what it is that they're saying and actually think more carefully about it. And oftentimes they'll start to clean it up. You know, they'll start to take a couple of steps back and say, well, what what I'm actually saying is, um, you know, for the next six months, you know, and and so already in that, that clarification is a great antidote for bullshit is mm-hmm. is to is to get the person to clarify what the claim actually is and they'll they'll oftentimes clean it up for us and so now it's great because now we're already exposing ourselves to to a, a lower concentration right of, of bullshit right um and yeah, then so the, that's yes because yeah, the so, devil's the devil's always in the details right i mean absolutely it, all types absolutely. of conversations it's uh, you know our our default is to kind of express yes. this kind of uh, express our our emotional view, not necessarily the components of that view. Yeah. Yes. And when they're clarifying, they'll tell you oftentimes what way they clean it up is to tell you all of the factors. If they're just right, you know, if all of the moderators, all of the, the conditionals are set in this way under these conditions, this is what I think is going to occur. And then you realize, well, well, maybe that condition only occurs like 10% of the time. And so, Uh, It just puts in perspective what the claim actually is. And then then the second question to ask is how. And there's there's actually two good questions, two good how questions. And the first one, though, is is how do you know? You know, how is it that you know that that there won't be any jobs lost during the restructuring? You know, and and and, you know, who did you speak with or how do you what 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 led you to this conclusion? What evidence? And and that question is to sort of get and nudge people to start talking about any genuine evidence that they may have. All right. Readily available. Uh, but because that doesn't always work the way we want it to, uh, and people often don't, they don't include anything uh, counter to that 
claim. They don't, they don't entertain disconfirming evidence. Uh, a good, another good how question is, how might that claim be wrong? Or how might it be false? Mm-hmm. And that will directly uh, elicit some entertainment of disconfirming evidence if they've ever entertained it. Um, oftentimes they'll generate it uh, on the spot if there, if there is any, um, because chances are they haven't considered it even up to that point. So, so, so how to the two, two how questions are pretty good. And then another good question is uh, have you considered, you know, or what, what other alternatives have you considered? You know, I hear you saying that no jobs are going to be lost, but but have you considered um, uh, the conditions of, of of the budget and 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 revenue over the past quarter and and things like that? Have you considered these other alternatives that are are important factors? And all three of these questions: the what, how, and have you considered? They're really basic critical thinking skills 101 questions and they they're all designed to help you better diagnose the speaker's true and you know genuine concern with truth genuine evidence and established knowledge and then after you get the answer to those kinds of questions then you can make a determination as to whether or not you're buying what it is that they're selling mm-hmm. and so uh my last question is going to be, should we, should we call bullshit ever? And I, I know in your book, you, you, you mentioned that, that, um, that, that there might be some certain contexts where it, it, it would make sense to, to just literally, you know, call bullshit. Um, what, what might those contexts be? And, and do you think that that's, that's, that's an effective way of, of, of having a conversation with somebody that might be bullshitting. Yes. I, I do think that the best context to, to call bullshit is in private. Uh, people want, if, if they've made claims publicly, okay, that's one thing, but to confront them publicly is going to increase the likelihood that they're going to double and triple down on their bullshit. And then it's just going to make the whole situation worse. Right. right. So, so if you can do it in private, that, that is uh, highly recommended. Um, but another another good rule to use is is to is to make sure that it is bullshit before you call it right and and you don't even have to you don't have to use the word bullshit but you, I mean you can sort of I've I've often uh, recommended just acting a bit confused and start asking those questions yeah. is just to see well I, I'm really interested I've never heard that idea you know I've never I've, I've never considered that perspective. Uh, you know, before it is, you know, you decide, okay, well, I just don't, I don't agree. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's wrong. Um, and to be considerate, you know, attack the claim, attack the idea and, and not the person. Uh, right. That's, that's a highly recommended rule. Um, and to also permit the bullshitter uh, to do anything other than double down on their bullshit by, right. for instance, kind of restating uh their claim um and potentially um you know cleaning up cleaning it up as perhaps a understandable error in reasoning um maybe even adding in there well you know i used to think that too ryan that uh that that you know that 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 issue was a problem and then i had this other information that led me to a different conclusion um and then when we also uh can admit admit things like that we can also i i think uh admit our own guilt to bullshitting and and not and also agreeing not to double down on our own bullshit you know which again just makes things worse um and uh, to peter 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 bogosian i think he calls it a bridge like you whenever whenever you're talking to someone that might you know have a wildly different view that may or may not be you know aligned with scientific evidence you you want to make sure that um, that 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 if they're that if you're just assuming that there is sort of a scientifically valid side versus a non-scientifically valid side, one thing you can't do is is create a negative emotion in the other person. Yes, because yes. That's just not that. That's the last thing that is is going to to help them. Yes. Revise revise their position. Yeah. And otherwise that's, it's also going to just cut, you know, it's just going to cut short the conversation. It's just going to shut it down. 
but I think the final thing uh, I've got is rule six in the, in the book mm-hmm. is to not battle bullshit with more bullshit, you know, to be ready to not only have uh, evidence-based uh, information and, and reasoning and communication um, in your arsenal, but to explain how you came to the conclusion that you came to, right? Mm-hmm. And, to, and, and I think we could start to model that for our, our bullshit artists and, and, and our, our bullshitters that, that we come into contact with. And, you, there's, and don't ex, you know, I would also say don't expect there to be sort of a, a change overnight or, or, or anything immediate. I mean, it may just plant a seed of, like, of, of how to engage in criti- basic critical thinking and to model that I think if we agreed to do that collectively, I think we could make a big change in our, our communicative culture um, that at the moment uh, holds uh, calling bullshit as neither a descriptive or what we, call, we would call a, a, um, a, a should behavior, like an injunctive norm. It's not, a, it's not a descriptive norm. It's not what people usually do. And it's not what people usually think they should do. Usually they think they should just be quiet and, and just assume that it has no impact. But yeah. uh, my latest studies I'm uh, working on right now with regard to illusory truth show that that lies are can be tagged if you tell someone you know everything i just told you ryan was a lie well then you can tag that as false you know that it's false but if i say everything i just told you is bullshit because by definition it could be just by chance by accident be true it doesn't have the false the the false tag that's as potent as the one that that the lie information even if i give you the same the same information. If I give you, you know, an example like Sydney is the capital city of Australia, which that's not true, um, but I could be lying or I could be bullshitting you. And then if I tell you that it's it's a lie, then you say, oh, okay, well now you know that it's not true, right? But I was like, well, I really don't care. It should be, and I'm mm-hmm. bullshitting you. Then, well, I might be right, right? And and yeah. and it only takes one exposure. That's the crazy thing. It only takes yeah. one exposure of an idea to start to think that it's true. Yeah, it reminds me of how, <laughs> of how utterly it, how utterly exhausting it is to not practice uh, bullshit on a regular basis. In the sense that, when you when you really want to be constrained by facts, when you want to 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 be that clear and not misstep and not overspeak, it's just flat out going to be a lot more work. But Ultimately, hopefully that's, you know, you're, as you mentioned, modeling, you're modeling a better way of thinking, right? Yeah. So I, I think if people are more willing to do that, um, um, Eve, I mean, there, there are some benefits to doing it publicly because then, then other people may see you do it and right. They might think about it for maybe the very first time they might consider doing it themselves. Um, and then before you know it, you have, sort of a, a, a snowball effect where, where people are feeling more comfortable calling bullshit. It certainly happens. Uh, I see it happen quite a bit on social media where people feel, you know, somewhat protected um, and sort of hiding behind uh, maybe their, their, their cell phone. But if people could do it in, you know, in discreet, uh, careful, you know, caring ways, uh, publicly or privately in person, I think it's much, it's much more effective. And, and you're just you're inviting people to think about things um, from a, an evidence-based uh, reasoning standpoint, which I believe is, is always better. And a better information is not going to guarantee uh, better judgment and decision-making, but I think better judgment and decision-making almost always requires better information. Well, the name of the book is The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much, uh, John Petrocelli, for being uh, on the podcast today. All right. Thank you, Ryan. For more on John... Check out his book, The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. Or head over to YouTube and watch his TEDx talk on bullshit entitled, Why BS is More Dangerous Than a Lie. 
Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. This is the final episode of 2021. The holiday break is a perfect time to relax and maybe listen to a new podcast. So please tell a friend about the show if you enjoy what you've heard so far. I'd like to wish all of my listeners a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? (laughs) 